Hi, this is Tony Silva. And Charles Wiz. This is episode 65. Two teachers talking. Charles and I get together and discuss teaching. Teaching in Japan, teaching English, and all the fun involved there. And um, today, something a little bit different. We have um, a little guest interview with uh, DJ Condon, who is, was, I guess at this point, uh, headmaster at the Canadian Academy, uh, one of the uh, well-known institutions in the in the Kansai area, but something that maybe uh, people outside or a little bit farther away from Kobe might not know about. And uh, Charles may want to talk about what Canadian Academy is and how it kind of fits into the bigger picture of things. Well, I don't know how it fits into the bigger picture, but Canadian Academy is an international school in Kobe. It's located on Roko Island. Um, it's a school where my daughter goes. What uh, what age group? Did, uh, what's the range? Of this? Is, it, is it junior? It's everything from preschool oh, okay, all good. the way to high school. Okay. So it's a, it's a full school. Mm-hmm. And it's what's known as an IB World School, an international baccalaureate world school, which means that the school offers either a primary years program, which is known as PYP, uh, MYP, middle years program, or the diploma program, which is the high school program that results in a student um, being awarded the international baccalaureate. Um, And it's a pretty interesting, intense kind of curriculum. Uh, That'll be covered in the interview with DJ. But basically, uh, an IB World School is a school that has applied to the International Baccalaureate Organization, has um, met some pretty rigorous requirements, and has then been approved by them. So that's basically what Canadian Academy is. And as you pointed out, it's kind of like a pretty big fixture, I think, in the Kansai area. Very well known, and also um, very well respected in Asia as a well-respected international school. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much in Kansai, it is considered the international school. I don't know that any other institution enjoys that kind of halo around it. I mean, I, I don't have kids. I don't know anything about it um, other than, you know, used to see the kids on the train every now and then. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty well known, though. Um, I think it does have a pretty good reputation. And, you know, we're happy. My wife and I are very happy with the education our daughter's receiving. Until the tuition bill comes. Uh, you know, even though the tuition's really, really high for what our daughter's getting out of it and how it's really helping, I think, her develop as a human being, both intellectually, emotionally. Well, sure, priorities, right? Uh, <laughs> if you're gonna... it's, 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 it's money well spent. Exactly. So we, we, never, we never feel really bad when we pay that money. I'll remind you of that. <laughs> well, it's it's coming up in another month, so <laughs> we're well, counting I've got pennies. This, I've got this recording, and I'm going to play it back to you. <laughs> All right. Well, should we uh, should we hit it? Yeah, let's just go in. Um, yeah, you'll hear a, a couple of things talked about. Ah, yeah, For some see. people who might not rem- um, know, we're going to talk. At one point, um, I mention, or DJ mention, or we talk about MOOCs. MOOCs are massive um online open online courses there you go so um where people it's using the internet and people go online and they take these courses that involve video and quizzes and tests and things like that examples uh it started um mit i think started doing this and stanford's a professor from stanford who ended up creating udacity so if you're interested you can just google udacity 
um, and see what a massive open online course looks like. Anything else we need to cover before? I think that's it. I think that's that pretty so much. So we've explained stage. the IB program and what an IB World School is, and so yeah, sit back and uh, listen to DJ, who's quite an interesting guy. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Hi, this is Charles Wiz, and I'm with DJ Condon, the current and soon-to-be former headmaster of Canadian Academy, an international school on Roko Island in Kobe, um, a school that has, I think, quite a good reputation in Asia. Yeah, I'd say so. 101 years of history. 101 years. Yeah. That's right. So the hundred, the centennial was last year. It was last year. Yeah. Okay. And we're in DJ's office, and you're going to be hearing some children playing from outside, but yeah. they are not Canadian Academy children. That's from no, the... they're from the local school. I'm not sure which one, but uh, the local school. It's Friday afternoon. Everybody's winding down, getting ready for the weekend. And we're winding down, too. And so this is a little different. We're doing an interview. We've done a couple of these for the Two Teachers Talking podcast. We're interviewing DJ because DJ is... On my way out. On your way out. On your way right. up. Out and up, out and down, the down and out? Uh, out. We'll just say out. Right? Okay. I'm heading toward um, Kailua, Hawaii, where I'll become the headmaster at Le Jardin Academy, which is uh, like Canadian Academy. It's an IB World School. So it offers uh, the PYP program, the MYP program, and the DP program. Okay. And so for those of our listeners who are not familiar with some interesting abbreviation acronyms, right. so I'm going to go P. PYP, DVM, PY, okay, RBR. So PYP is primary years program, and it, uh, it's for kids up to grade five. The middle years program are kids in grades six through 10, um, or 11 through 16 years of age. And then the diploma program, the last two years designed for kids um, between 16 and 18. Well, talk a little bit about the International Baccalaureate Program. What does it mean to be an IB World School? Uh, well, I think it means a lot in, in terms of uh, your orientation, that uh, you embrace IB philosophy, which is really a, um, at the cornerstone. It's around international mindedness, um, which is a, that? yeah, that's a contested term. It, it, it's one of those terms people use a lot and don't always know what it means. I um, mean, like, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I guess international mindedness is uh, the idea about taking a global perspective um, it has it according to the IB definition it has to do a lot to do with multilingualism uh, also with intercultural competence so um, understanding different cultures being able to adapt to different cultural values and um, value orientations uh, and then also it has a strong component of global engagement where uh, part of the IB mission is to make this a better more peaceful world uh, so it's it's quite uh, idealistic, um, but it's also practical. The IB now is probably in about eighty countries, um, growing, 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 rapidly, growing. rapidly growing. Uh, the diploma program, I think, has probably a deserved reputation for being one of the most rigorous programs of study for for kids that age, um, and it's the IB is is really popular in the international school world, and specifically. What does an IB program offer in international schools? Because not every international school, for example, in Japan is an IB school. How many IB right. schools are there actually that offer all um, the way through? 
all the way through. I'm not exactly sure. Probably, you know, less than 10. Right. Yeah, probably less than 10. Um, the IB started back in the 60s. Um, you know that period, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. idealism and hippies. What we, and what we remember of it, right, yeah. Foggy, foggy recollections. Um, it started, uh, yeah, in the 60s. It was really sort of in the aftermath of, um, you know, World War II. Uh, Kurt Hahn was, was the guy who formed Outward Bound and founded the United World Colleges, you know, really looking at um, the importance of holistic education, uh, a lot of emphasis on, you know, peace and conflict studies in, in the aftermath of the, of the war. And it started with the diploma program, which was really designed initially um, for the kids of mobile, globally mobile adults, a lot, a lot of them diplomats or business people, to give their kids a high quality educational experience but also the credentials so they could go back to university in their home countries. So the, it's a real practical basis in that sense that a parent would say, okay, I'm a diplomat or I'm serving overseas and I'm gonna put my child into an IB school. Right. And that means that if once we become repatriated, my child will be able to re-enter the society and the culture and go right into school and That's not right. have to worry about transcript that's and right. All the other incredible rigmarole that could occur. Yeah, that's that's where it started. This that's sort how it of trans, transportability. The mobile, going right. mobile. But then it, it evolved. Uh, I think it was in the '90s. The middle years program started, and then late '90s was the primary years program. And the philosophy is really in line with well, a lot of stuff that I believe in. You know, um, John Dewey, Jerome Bruner. Uh, you know, idealists, <laughs> idealists. Well, uh, constructivist philosophy, you know, so it's, it's uh, inquiry based as well. So students are very much encouraged to ask questions, be active participants in their own learning. Um, a lot of experiential ed, autonomous um, learning, a self-regulation. Yeah, absolutely. A lot, lot of writing involved, a lot of student choice and how they demonstrate their learning. And it's yeah. writing across the curriculum. Pretty much, isn't it? There's a, uh, yeah, I would say so. I'd say you could almost define it. I mean, you have writing in math classes. Absolutely, yeah. Writing. Is well, there any class where you don't have writing? No. Every, every class. So there's, it's, there's so by definition, then yeah. it's a writing across yeah. the curriculum program. Yeah. So in a certain way, the IB program basically embodies everything good <laughs> about, or what basically is at the forefront of current educational thinking in terms of what's good, what's best. But it's also, if I'm correct, DJ, the thing that I find so interesting about the IB program is it focuses on the learning. Yeah. Much more than it focuses, it's not really a teaching, a teaching program as much as it's a learning program. Well, they do, the IB does seek to put the learner at the center. Right. Right, of, of everything. So it's uh, with that inquiry based, it seeks to empower students. Um, and it, it does this in some pretty, um, admirable ways I think in each of the three of those three programs the primary years program middle years program and the diploma program there is um, a project or an opportunity if you will for the student to engage in designing their own learning um, in the primary years program it's called the exhibition and the students have to it, we're talking about this is for fifth graders so you're talking about 11 year olds 11 year olds 10 right. 11 year olds who are 
coming up with their own research question. This is what I want to study. Give us an example of a research question that a, a fifth grader comes up oh, with. Oh, I just uh, mentored two, two kids, fifth graders. One of them was looking at uh, air pollution in China and what are the causes and what people can do in China uh, you know, to get the, the government to do something about it. Um, and she is not a Chinese student, but she's okay. just interested in that topic. And I'm going to interrupt you here for a second, TJ, because I just want to mark something that you just said so offhandedly, which is that the headmaster, which is, I guess, there's the principals, but you are the the leader of the school. You are the big dog. As I, I think I referred to you one time when we were first talking, when I said, excuse me, but what does headmaster mean? Yeah. I said, oh, you're the big dog. But you just mentioned that you mentored two students. Yes. Yeah, and I just yeah. find that amazing that the headmaster, with all your responsibilities, with everything that you're doing, you mentored two fifth grade students? I did, yeah. yeah. Was that, so, well, would that, I'd be, like would to... that be average for a headmaster, or do you think that's something really that is something well, I don't know. that I you think do? There's, uh, it's definitely something I do. I think there's plenty of headmasters who like to do that too. Okay. Um, I was in the classroom for 20 years before I went into school administration. And I taught, uh, just two years ago was the last time I taught a class. I taught the uh, theory of knowledge class right. in the diploma program. Which is essentially this a is by the way really interesting. Go ahead. It's a great course. It's a, essentially a philosophy class, critical thinking, and really ask kids uh, the subject. It, the subject matter is all the other classes that the kid takes, and what are the knowledge claims made in the different disciplines? How are they justified? Um, how much certainty can you attach to those knowledge claims? Uh, so it's actually a class. It would be. What year students would take this class? Uh, 11 and 12. Okay. So what you do is you take 11 and 12th grade students, and then you put them in a class, and you say, okay, let's question everything that you've learned right. up until this point, and let's question yeah. everything that you're learning. Now, yeah. to Adventures anyone... Adventures and cognitive dissonance. Yes, so that's, that's right, and uh, Kahneman and thinking fast, thinking slow, right, yeah, and cognitive yeah. biases. Yeah, but right. I just, um, you know, imagine, you know, that, you know, tell the listeners out there that this is the environment you're in. This is like every teacher's dream, I think. And I'm going to, after we're finished with this uh, podcast and DJ and I maybe go out for some beers, I'm going to rag him for ruining my <laughs> teaching experience and career by introducing me to Canadian Academy as a parent. Um, let's segue real quickly. Um, DJ, I think people have a basic idea. This is an exciting program. I'm a parent um, and Canadian Academy is anything but cheap. I want to point that mm. out. But my wife and I consistently are happy and unbelievably pleased with the education our daughter's getting. Um, let's move over to, there's this um, movement now in Japan where mm. the Ministry of Education actually wants to start having IB programs in something like 200 high schools by a certain amount of... Yeah, they, um, I was at a, a meeting where representatives from MEXT came and they announced their goal to have 200 uh, Japanese schools bring on the IB diploma program within five years. Okay, now you'll just... Ignore the smirk on my face. But okay. what do you really, do you really think that's possible? What do you think are the impediments? Do you think that, for example, my immediate response as an educator, DJ, and as a parent, watching and looking at the IB program is that it's not just a matter of implementing a program. It's a completely different teaching style. It's a completely different, it's a different learning philosophy style. Of it's learning. a completely, that's right. it's a completely yeah. different approach to what a school is about and how the school functions. 
What do you think? Do you think it's going to be possible? Or what? Let's be concrete. Okay. Answer yes or no. Do you think the current with the current approach to the IB program from MEX that they will be able to implement the program? Uh, I don't think they'll meet their goal of 200 schools within five years. Okay. What do they need to do? What needs to happen in Japan so that the IB program can be, you know, successfully yeah. implemented in schools? Yeah, well, what I've been told, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in local schools or, or local universities, but I, I think part of, the, part of the obstacle is the universities, um, not... Not knowing I work exactly, at a university. Um, not knowing exactly like how to interpret the 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 diploma transcript. You know, for example, this theory of knowledge class it doesn't fit into any discipline, really. You know, mm. so what what do you do with that? And that can be a problem in Japan when something does not fit. Well, you have to yeah you have to flex because this is a, a constructivist philosophy, right? Which the compared to you know, the traditional schooling where the idea is this knowledge exists out there independent of any learner and then the teacher's job is to kind of pour it into the kid's head, you know, the constructivist philosophy is essentially metaphysically different. It's that knowledge it doesn't exist independent of knowers, right? Um, and so you have we to We are not a tabula rosa that gets filled right, up with... Exactly. The, and, we should go back too because there is this real understanding in the IB program, the difference between, let's say, understanding, and by the way, talking about understanding, um, understanding by design, Grant right. Wiggins, we have some bad news. Oh yeah, that is really sad news. Grant Wiggins, the uh, one of the co-authors of Understanding by Design. A fantastic book that everyone should read, should be required reading in ev for every teacher. I, I agree, and just a brilliant brilliant educational writer and thinker good theorist. man and by the way that's a really good point he's this guy was brilliant and he was a really really good writer yeah and engaging he, challenging um, and unfortunately grant wiggins died passed, this week so, passed away 64 yeah. years old yeah it's a real loss to the educational yes. community i've you, you know i subscribe to his blog i think maybe you do, I do too, too. And, and my students um have to subscribe subscribe to his book. Looking forward to reading it every every time it comes out, right? And uh, and there's always been... Yeah, that's a real loss. That's a yeah, real it's loss. a real loss So um, to yeah. his family, yeah. but also just selfish concern. It's just that's just yeah. a lot of insight lost. This yeah. man, one of the smartest people out there. Super smart. And practical, you know, he, he, I don't, he didn't lose the feel for the daily realities, right? right. Uh, yeah. So, in many ways, kind of the embodiment of IB. Well, in I a think lot of IB, ways, right? That you know, was, never losing the focus on the practical, but always seeing the big picture. And yeah. it seemed like a guy who was always looking for more answers. Never. And here's the thing I felt about Graham Wiggins: this was a man who was not scared of any questions. Yeah. And he wasn't scared of, of laying out his answers either. Right. You know, even no matter who it might uh, put off, right? The, if he felt like this was the reality, he'd, he, he'd say it. Yes, know? this was a guy, I think, who would be a, uh, yeah. what would you call it, a, a fellow traveler with Richard Feynman, right? A man yeah. who would like turn to Einstein and say, I think you're wrong. But, <laughs> so, but, you know, I just want to mention that, yeah, Grant, yeah. Grant Wiggins' passing is a real loss to us as educators, and I feel it's a real yeah. loss to my 
my students who are becoming yeah, to looking forward us, to really, teachers. To but, all of us. Uh, somebody who, yeah, I always look forward to it. So, yeah. But, you know, going back to the, um, Mexican. you know, yeah, IB in Japan, I, I can understand why they want to do it. A lot of, a lot of countries are bringing it on. The, the official languages of the IB for a long time were English, French, and Spanish. And then they realized, whoa, there's a lot of other, you know, a lot of other more, There are a lot of more languages in the world. Well, so Chinese <laughs> has come in. And, you know, um, Japan is seeking to be, you know, globally relevant in the economic scene. And uh, they need people who understand the other cultures okay. and other ways of looking at things and not always doing things exactly the same way. Right, but how do you implement an IB program in a country that is test-oriented? Yeah, well... Because, again, the focus in IB is understanding. Yeah, We've talked a lot about that, I think, what understanding really means. The, right, yeah. And we, you and I have talked a lot about just the importance of transfer. Right, yeah. Transfer of learning, I think, is something that... That's a key concept. It's right? a key, the it's idea a key that concept. you can take what you've learned and apply it in apply novel it situations. In yeah. Situations where it's sh you have no idea how to apply it. I've, trust me, my daughter has used many of those strategies and arguments with me. Right. Yeah. I don't know how grateful I am about that. DJ. Well, that's the downside of IB is your kids can out argue you. Parents, right? parents yeah. are complaining. Probably you right. do know. I should have. We should do that. Put that up on on the Canadian Academy's website. You want your kids to argue with you? Send them to right. CA. Well, it's a good thing, though. It's empowering to students, right? Yes. That they they learn to trust their voice. Uh, they become confident in their own ability to think matters through, um, and they're yeah, they're they're like Renaissance people when they're when they're done with the program. And there's that the thing I've noticed too. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, I hope you don't mind I'm mentioning when I was invited to attend the Strategic Corps Planning yeah, Committee. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, I think people who have listened to the podcast know I can be pretty critical and cynical, but the majority of people at this meeting were staff of the Canadian Academy, and I was just blown away, blown away by the commitment, the quality, the intelligence, the insight that people brought. to. I was just like, wow, these are the people who are educating my daughter. I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to enroll in elementary school and... Because They're good people. We're, we're really fortunate in international schools is that, um, you know, we don't have a lot of the bureaucratic regulations and the social problems, you know, besetting, say, a public school in the U.S. where I come from um, and, and really can focus on teaching and learning. And uh, kids are hungry for it. They're, they're great. So do you, again, I mean, I personally can't see how the IB program can work in Japan with its test regime, right? Tr students trying to get into the best universities. I can't see how parents, I mean, I can see it, it happening. I can see the curriculum being used, but kind yeah. of like not achieving what it's really set out to do. I don't know. It, the diploma program has a very rigorous uh, assessment regime. Right. And their external t tests, um, they're very demanding. In the, in the diploma program, there are what's known as higher level courses and standard level courses. And as a student chooses, that it's, it's a comprehensive program. So if they're going to do an IB diploma, they're doing IB classes in six different areas. And then depending on what their interests are, then they choose to do at least three, maybe four at a higher level, the rest at a standard level. The higher level courses are all 240 hours in length, and the right. standard are 150. 
and the higher level courses are all considered on par with a freshman university course. And so there's a, a very rigorous assessment scheme that goes with that. Right. But that rigorous assessment scheme is not measuring how much information a student has. No. It's measuring understanding. Understanding and ability to think. Right. And I just and, right. and again, I just don't know whether the Japanese test regime measures that. Um you would know better than I. Yes. Yeah. You would know better than I. Um Fortunately nobody in my university listens to this podcast. So <laughs> I, yeah, I have real problems with the the test regime, the entrance exams. I don't think they measure understanding. But we have the same issue with some I think like the SAT also is not a measure of understanding. Right. right. The SAT the SAT one has been under a lot of criticism, you know, over the last decade or so. Right. Uh, but this emphasis in IB for understanding, um, you know, tra the really try almost trying to really, t you know, teaching to transfer in a certain way, yeah, right? Yeah. And teaching towards synthesis, the ability yeah. to bring that information in and find the connections between, you know, between different what I like to call connect the dots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very deliberately. You right. Know, um, yeah. Very deliberately. And that just seems to be kind of at odds with what Japanese education is trying to be. So. Maybe. I'm just curious to see, you know, what you think. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You know, the um, certainly the Ministry of Education is is throwing a lot behind it. Um, they're partnering with the IBO, so the IB has started this bilingual diploma uh, for Japanese English, and uh, making putting a lot of resources out there available in Japanese. You know, sending a lot of PD um, opportunities here to Japan. We ourselves, with some of the international schools, are hosting um, local school uh, teachers and, and administrators. How many, for example? How many people uh, do you think, think you've brought over? We've and... probably had, at in the last year, we probably had three different visits, you know, where people come and they want to observe what's going on, how do we do it. Um, and it is, it's, it's a bit shocking for them because right. nothing else, it's the, it's inquiry-based. The students are asking questions and right. challenging their the teachers. teachers yes, right. Challenging each yeah, other. Sorry, it's, sorry. That's a you know. So there's actually the flip side of this question, right? Which is not whether or not teachers are going to be able to adapt to the IB program. How well will Japanese students who have gone through traditional Japanese schooling be able to do this incredible somersault for, you know, dive off the yeah. deep end into inquiry-based learning? So I think. There's, that's, a, again, a topic we can explore maybe by Skype while you're right, in wonderful okay. Hawaii and I'm in, like, Kobe. Sorry, Kobe's a nice place to live, but Hawaii just sounds so much better. I want to move on, DJ, to another topic. Um, mm. And this is something that has been a really big movement in education, and you and I have talked a lot about this, which is this, the movement now towards evidence-based education, evidence-based learning. Yeah. Why don't you run with that a little bit, and what do you think about, you know, where does that come from, how is, and how does Canadian Academy, for example, Yeah, you know, well, we were referencing that? Grant Wiggins before, and I, I think his, that framework, the Understanding by Design framework, um, really supports evidence-based education. The idea that, you know, first you decide, well, what are your goals? What do you want the students to know and be able to do? And then the very, very counterintuitive thing... Well, then figure out how you're going to assess it. Right, which is totally like usually <laughs> right. the thing that, it, that a comes teacher after. would do at the end. At the end. No, this comes in the middle. 
and they, at the end are planning the activities. Right. right, and walk us through, why Why did Grant Wiggins argue that the second step should actually be, how are you going to assess? Well, because activity-based curricula very often don't lead to those desired results. They're fun activities. They might be engaging, but they don't necessarily demonstrate understanding. One of the great quotes from Grant Wiggins was, um, what was it? Hands-on does not mean minds-on. Oh, right, yeah. Right. They oh. also say, uh, innocent of understanding until proven guilty. <laughs> right. Oh, guilty! Right, yeah. And then the other uh, aspect of evidence-based education, the most profound book I've read in the last five years on um, is John Hattie's book on on. Visible learning. Visible learning. You know, Again, yes, um, another great. Yeah, picking up, well, Marzano, Robert Marzano did this as well, a lot of meta-analytic studies. But uh, Hattie's book, to me, is is the most compelling. And it provides a really strong, empirical-based uh, evidence of what works. You know, what is, what is highly effective teaching. Right, and I know that, you know, it can engage teachers and... Most people will tell you that teaching is an art, not a science. Well, I think it's both. You know, it, it absolutely is an art. You know, the, it requires a lot of improv. Um, you need to have a lot of tricks up your sleeve or, you know. Um, but at the same time, there is a science to it. And, and we've learned a lot more about, you know, effective teaching, how humans learn, you know, what differentiates expert knowledge from no, novice knowledge. This is, again, Hattie's article on um, Do Teachers Make a Difference? Where yeah. he, makes it, he clearly looks at the difference between novice, experienced, and expert yeah. teachers. Yeah. And some of these things are counterintuitive to us. Right. You well, know? What's the best one? What is it? Um, he has that in, in the article where you, or his book where you rank. He asks right, you to rank right, yeah. like which of you, these interventions, right? Yeah. Do you think, you think has really a, matters? Mo- a lot. Really yeah. matters, and yeah, most people well, get them completely wrong. Yeah, and, things like homework doesn't really have much. Uh, uh, much problem-based learning doesn't also, have as much as you, you might think. But number Although, one, that's ahead. a problematic item as well because those studies focus on a certain kind of problem-based right. learning. Right. Okay. And that's another podcast in itself, right, but yeah. I, I like what's number one, though. Yeah, the student-teacher relationship. Right. And feedback. And feedback. Right. Crucial. How Crucial much feedback. feedback. It's yeah. how much feedback the teacher is getting from the students, which ties us back into Grant Wiggins' understanding by design with the emphasis on assessment, which yeah. for Grant Wiggins, by the way, assessment is not testing. Assessment is right. measuring learning and right. understanding. Yeah, it could be a test, but it's not synonymous with a test. Exactly. The other UBD uh, metaphor for assessment is a photo album, not snapshot. Mm. So instead of the snapshot would be the one test, you know, the high stakes test determines all. Photo album is, look, you've got, okay, you do have your test, you have your informal checks for understanding, you've got the student doing some kind of performance, you know, there's on multiple measures that that are needed to ascertain whether or not the student truly understands. Yeah, I, I love that because I also, when I talk with my students you know, who are going to be future teachers, I always say the ideal test will be a learning opportunity. 
It should yeah. be an opportunity yeah. for you to really apply what you know. And but not only that, it should enhance your understanding. It should move you forward in your. It should be a learning experience. Yeah. Yeah. So well, there's, you know, I first got my start in IB in in Florida public schools back, way back. Another early, humid place. Early nineties. There's a theme yeah. here. And one of the first questions, one they one of the questions they asked me in the interview process is, how do you feel about teaching to the test? And you know, then as now, that's considered bad. And I think I got the job because I said, it all depends on the test. If it's a good test, test no problem. No problem. That's a good idea. But if it's, you know, a test that doesn't really measure understanding, is just being used to sort students out, well, yeah, what's the point? So we have people like Hattie, Grant Wiggins. There's a lot of other people. There's a lot of data out there that is informing us about how young people learn, for example, all the difference between how young people learn and how adults learn, for example, is fascinating. Mm, yeah. How, what's the best way to remember? And a lot of it, what's amazing to me, is it's really counterintuitive. It's, no, we're yeah. not really, we've been doing this all wrong. Yeah. So. Well, a lot of it wrong. Yeah, not yeah. all of it, okay, right? One should never make, you know, well, blanket statements. The reason like I say that, I want to go back to that um, Hattie's uh, um, support of the teacher-student relationship, because that's where the art comes in. Mm. You know, again, we can we can and we should be really scientific in our approach. And yet we're not creating widgets, right? We're talking about we're human not? beings. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you know, everybody's different. That's the other thing we know about human learning. Um, prior experience matters tremendously. And if we try to, you know, treat the students one size fits all, not taking into account how they're each different, um, and also that how the, the teacher's different, right? right? So that that relationship still really matters a lot. There's empirical evidence for it, and, and time-worn common sense tells us right. it matters. And soon, hopefully, there will be evidence-based teacher-student interaction kind of thing. But, right, they're not exclusive. I think this is a key, and you and I have talked a lot about this, that there's this need to move away from either or right and yeah. to and yeah and when you were talking about the difference right different students and that's where the teacher comes in right the ability for the teacher to modify tweak adapt right. I think about the Malcolm Gladwell talk on um, spaghetti sauce right yeah. right the TED yeah. talk where he talks about Herbert Moskowitz who comes up with this great idea which is there is no such thing as the perfect Pepsi there are only perfect Pepsis right and that's exactly it that the teacher the art for the teacher and hopefully there will be evidence for this in the future it's really data driven on how to best address each of those different kinds of students needs right and then the, the sign of a good teacher is the ability to discern what are those teacher or what are those student strengths and the student needs and then be able to adjust practice to meet them that for some, this is a, a, a pretty threatening. Yes. Because it, it, it changes the role of the teacher from authority figure, you know, the, the person who has the answers, to really the, the co-learner, kind of the professional learner who is able to go embark on this journey with the student and adjust to, to meet the student's needs. I'm kind of along for the ride. Yeah, exactly. I so, just have more experience and... I often tell my students that 
when we talk about what does what's a teacher, is there anything, is there such a thing as teaching? And I argue that there's not. That what someone can do is you can create opportunities for learning, and the teacher's job is to sequence those mm. Mm. in a way so that students can explore. Okay, let's move on to the third kind of topic, which is something I think that you're really interested in, which is the future of education. Yeah. Where, where yeah. are things going? And we've talked a lot about this, and there's some interesting things CA is doing, Canadian Academy is doing, but yeah. where, what do you think is happening in education? What, and, you know, when, you, when you do like your short view and long view, you, know, you zoom in, zoom out, where do you, what do you see happening? Well, I, it picks up on what we were just talking about, uh, recognizing individual differences. I, I think education is moving towards trying to personalize education for each student because um, students can get, it's easy to get content knowledge. It's, it's all around us. For some of us. Um, some people do have problems getting the content, we know. Yeah. Um, but that's part of what we're talking about right now is helping those students in different ways because yeah, people learn what I, differently. What I really meant was just about availability of okay. content. You know, you can, you can a lot of Google information. it, right? Yeah. There's a lot of information. And, and, you know, in the future, we're going to have smart rooms where you, you walk into the room and, you know. You're smarter. Voice, <laughs> well, voice activated. That's what I'm hoping for. I walk into the room and I'm smarter. <laughs> I walk into the room and they'll go, no, dude, you need to leave. Right. <laughs> and, and you leave smarter than when you came in, right? That would be good. That would be perfect. Oh, it was um, a short visit, but I feel better. Yeah. Well, I think so. I think that's what's going to happen is this movement towards um, personalizing education, and and it's not going to be just around knowledge because um, anybody can have knowledge. It's what do you do with it, um, and then you know how do you extend going back to the, that concept of transfer. How do you apply what you know to new situations and then extend and asking good questions for what's next? Okay. Um, so the experience of education is gonna get more and more attention, as, as I think it should. The, you know, the, the days of putting everybody in rows in one room and giving them the exact same experience, those days are over. Uh, or should be over. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I'm, I'm still shocked. I, I mentioned this before in another podcast at one of the schools I teach at. I went in and they had this new building and it's this beautiful new building that has all sorts of air conditioning controls and like there's emergency notifications and environmental controls. And I walk in and they're just desks in rows. There's a, a, lec a podium. Right. Minus, mind you, podium and lectern are different. They're different. There actually right. is a podium. That's a riser that the teacher stands on, and then there's a lectern that the teacher sits behind, sits at or stands at, and then there are two screens that come down behind. And I was like, my God, did anybody? Did any? Has anybody paid any attention to what's been happening in education? Yeah. Right. But you know, so when you say that these days are gone, just, and then hopefully that's an example of where. That's why we go back to our discussion about, you know, will Japan be able to make that jump to IB? And I think of that building and I'm like, no. Right. But let's go back. So technology in the future. One thing you've talked about is, and I found this fascinating, was the, the issue of time, mm. temporality in education. Mm. Why don't you run with that? Well, we, you know, right now in, in your average school, the schedule drives everything. Right. Um, and the idea then is, is that learning takes place in these discrete 
um, chunks of time. These blocks. These blocks fixed, of time. Fixed blocks. Right. Fixed blocks of time. So um, this is borrowed from a book called Disrupting Class. Mm. Um, Thanks. Thanks for recommending yeah, that. Yeah. I think, who's the author? Christensen? I can put, I'll, I'll put, Clay, you know, yeah, whatever. Harvard, he's, he did a lot of work with looking at disruptive industries. And, right, exactly. And, what, yeah. and then he looked at education. Right. So in the in the traditional model, what's happened is that time is fixed and the learning is variable because it has to that learning has to fit into that schedule and if you've got 60 minutes on monday wednesday friday to learn it but you don't get it well sorry you got to move on and so the learning's variable but in the schools of the future what he's saying is the the learning is going to be fixed and the time is variable so that if if some you're really clear about what you want students to know and be able to do. If student A is able to get that in, you know, 60 minutes, okay. Student B needs 120 minutes, okay. okay. It's we can we can adjust the time, but what we what that requires us is to be really clear about what do we want students to know and be able to do. What is it, our, our minimum mastery? Right, and it removes the question of what do they need to know by when? Right, exactly. But I think there's an issue, which is, I think if it is Christensen, Christensen? I think it is Christensen. Okay. Yeah. Uh, very, very tech kind of, tech proponent, kind of techie guy. Really believes yeah. in the power of tech, and Tony and I both appreciate tech, but we're looking at, you know, talk, we've, talked about the failure of tech, right? Yeah. The, the fact that technology, um, I, I think I remember reading somewhere that this one technology was going to transform the classroom, and I think it was film strip projectors. <laughs> <laughs> remember those? Yeah. It, which was just basically 35 millimeter film with an audio tape, and it would right. go bink, and the teach. you know, there's always this belief that tech will transform. Yeah. But what, the tech has to serve these kind of, yeah, we're we're always in danger, I think, of of treating technology as an ends rather than as than a as a means. And, okay. and well, this is always a, a, a perennial problem in education, right? Okay. Ends and means, okay. and we we mix them up often. And okay. tech is the means to the end. It's not it's not the end in itself, right? But I think not just the education, a lot of different industries right now. You know, we have to ask ourselves, what can we humans do? That the computer can't. Or I would rephrase it by saying, what can we do with computers? Yeah. In other words, I think we're moving to an augmented world where, and I've read some articles which um, mm. have pointed out that the most, the people who will be successful in the future are those people who can add to what machines are able to do because yeah. it's simply a matter of processing power in Moore's Law. Yeah. Well, I've that I've learned a lot about that from you, actually. But nanotechnology. Oh, there I go, getting blamed for things again. Implants. I thought and, I, I thought I'd make it until uh, the end of the podcast. Okay, so there's the time thing. What what other ch um, things do you see happening in the future of education? Because I'm wondering what happens in a world where, as I tell my students, why are you in class? You should be googling. Well, in a um, certain way, how is that going to happen? You know, again, we're well. We were just talking about time. I think we also have to talk about space. You know where is the where is the location wait, that, of wasn't that like, wait 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 that was lost in space it's about time it's, <laughs> it's about, about space. space no it's about two men in the that was no those 
No, that's an old 60s... Gilligan's Island! I think oh, we're on to Gilligan's my Island. My favorite Martian. <laughs> my favorite Martian or something. But go ahead. I'm um, sorry. Well, just where learning takes place. You know, the, the, the whole concept of a school. Like, you go to this one place um, to, to have all your learning take okay. place. Well, how come? You know, what about going out and... You know the old apprenticeship model and and having experiences and you know in different kinds of settings and and learning from different kinds of people um, yeah see that would be my take is that I think the apprenticeship model is what's going to come back yeah, perhaps in, in a lot yeah. of ways I see that in a lot of ways you know apprenticing someone who wants to be a mathematician to working in a you know the department yeah. that's handling stats but but there, the the challenge, as I see it, the challenge would be knowing when that should happen, because you don't want a system like the old UK where, you know, at age fourteen, okay, it's all decided. You're you're on this track. This is what you're going to learn. Isn't that the Middle Ages? Right. Well, not that long ago. Right? right. But what I'm thinking, DJ, is that I see the apprentice model coming back, but not as it being this, as you said, not the time and space. Is that it would be something where someone would apprentice for maybe four or five weeks and then come back into the school. Mm, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then integrate that knowledge, move forward, then they'd go back out again. Right. So I think, again, we're moving yeah. into that and, that hybrid kind of scheme. Yeah. Well, if I could put a plug in for um, the new program we have here at Canadian Academy called Pathways, which is designed... Shameless um, self-promotion. Yeah. Plug. Which I am a proud <laughs> <laughs> you know, supporter well, we feel uh, pretty proud of it. We think it's um, we think it, it potentially portends the future, um, and it and again it allows for flexibility and student choice, a lot more student directed, rather than us adults telling the students, "Oh, you must do this." What an amazing concept! What trust do you the want student. to learn? Trust the trust the learner. Trust the learner. Trust the okay. learner. And so, so they'll have opportunities to for online learning or internships to go out in the community, intern in different organizations, mentorships where they might just work with one person, either here in the, in the school or elsewhere out in the community. Or maybe even by distance, right? Or by distance. Um, and then the final um, is project-based learning, which we touched upon before, but where either an individual student or a group of students might decide, hey, we want to learn this. Right? We really want to go after this. And then as a school, what we're, our job then is to try to facilitate that and try to make that happen for them and connect them with the right people, the right places, so they can learn what it is that they want to learn. And you know, you have the people out there who are going to say, yeah, but there are students who can't, aren't mature enough for that. There are students who aren't ready for that. How that, do you respond to that? I think that's true. And, and um, we, have our, we have another program for them. Right? So again, so, you're going back to... No perfect Pepsis. Yeah, it's got to be choice. It's got to be flexible. It's got to be adaptable. Right. And and maybe that's the biggest thing, which is um, I think it can CA that you guys have been moving towards that flexibility model, a model that, in other words, can serve a diverse learner base. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the challenge is to to do that, but still, you know, balance out the the 
we don't call it core knowledge, but you know things we really want to make sure kids know. There's yeah, there's some basic stuff do, that students right? yeah you have to be able to calculate. Yeah. You have to be able to read. You have to be able to generate sentences in a logical, right. ordered manner. Which takes us back to the assessment piece in pathways is to make sure that we feel confident at the end of this learning experience the kids had. Yes, they they have come away with some understanding. Right? Okay, all right. So yeah, this is some fascinating stuff. And again, you know, as a parent, I'm just thrilled. I'm just really thrilled. And, I'm you know, really happy. I'm really, really thrilled happy to hear you say that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your best commercial. But we're kind of getting ready to wind down. Um, and I'm wondering, what do you think is going to happen with MOOCs? Oh. You know, um, I've, t I've taken a few MOOCs myself. You know, the assessment hasn't been there. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen them. Um, I, I don't know that they're at the, at the level of, un, you know, teaching understanding in those areas yet. Um, but they're promising, you know, in terms of availability of content and, oh, I want to go learn something. Here's a MOOC. You know, I, I can go after it. Um, I, I think they're really promising, but I, I don't think their full potential is I think, again, they yet. fit a certain kind of student. Yeah. Okay. Well, DJ, I think we've covered a lot. Yeah. It's a good time to maybe wrap it up. Right. And I uh, want to wish you the best of luck as Thanks you so much. transition uh, yeah. from Kobe to Hawaii. Yeah, so no... why don't we do the next podcast in Kailua? You right. know, yeah, you bring me over. That will be a great thing. All right. Okay, well, so I want to say thanks to DJ for taking the time. This was something you didn't have to do, and I find it always interesting and interesting to speak with you, and hopefully we'll have the chance to talk with you again. Sounds great to me. Okay. Thank you very much, DJ. Thank you. Well, that was kind of fun. Yeah. I enjoyed interesting it. Interesting guy, huh? Very, very interesting guy. That's one definite thing you could say about DJ. An interesting educator, an interesting man, well-read. Um, yes. I had a yeah, good time. I met him only, yeah, I met him the one time. What was it? A year or two years now? I don't know. What it was that we did the uh, the group uh, podcast with uh, with him and uh, several other folks? And uh, yeah, yeah, really interesting. And uh, for me, um, interesting too because it's uh, such a different perspective and uh, different kind of teaching. I mean, different age groups and um, also getting the administrative perspective and not like a minor administrator you know but like you know the man at the helm kind of thing and it's um you know you, the difference that uh, makes in in approaching the tasks and the 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 ship um steering it from that angle and uh yeah really interesting from all kinds of angles yeah i think so especially when i'm talking with dj there's that real sense that this is you know someone who really has a solid firm foundation in education and theory and practice and, and being an administrator, being a teacher, you know, an all-around educator. And always, whenever I talk to him, I just think, God, you know, it'd be, it really kind of gets, give me this feeling of working in this international school environment would be really extremely positive. Because that's, I think, what he was saying. One of the key mm -hmm. things is just that it's a very positive environment for educators, as well as the students. That's also very different from, from what we experience. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. But and that's a wrap, and there's a wrap. <laughs> but um, 
I also one of the things that uh, I was and I wasn't surprised, but I was, I was happy to hear you, know, you guys talk about a little bit about the evidence-based teaching because so often you know we we're flying by the seat of our pants and you know it works it doesn't work we don't know and we never you know, often don't have the time to go back and reflect on things but uh, uh, to see that um, that idea baked in at the beginning as you said you know it's a very different uh, you know, kind of administrator but to see that baked into the uh, to, to the uh, to the form as it were uh, in, in infusing the whole um, approach and things was um, refreshing and, and good to hear yeah, and on top of the evidence-based aspect of it, which I, I like what you said, Tony, because it's really true, baked in, you know, just built in. It's just an integral part of what they're doing. And that the evidence serves the teaching. It's not a so-called just a tool for attempting to evaluate or assess what teachers are doing, but it's a real part of how the whole education process works by gathering that evidence and working from that evidence and moving forward is just a real nice thing. Yeah. 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 I completely agree on that. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that, uh, well, another one of the things that I enjoyed uh, in the discussion was the discussion about assessment and testing and uh, specifically the, uh, the discussion about uh, teaching to the test. And, you know, it's so one of the things that it's certainly one of my hot buttons. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'll go off, you know, immediately, you know, without adequate thought. But uh, interesting perspective that he gave about, well, a lot of that depends on the test itself. <laughs> and uh, it's so true, right? Because um, if you have a valid test that does in fact, assess what is happening in the classroom, what, what the student is learning, what, uh, what's happening uh, from the teacher end, what's happening at the student end. And if you got a good test, then why wouldn't you be teaching to the test? You know, if it fits, right? I mean, that's exactly what should be happening. Mm. What's all perfect? It's exactly what you said. It's what should be happening. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I, you can't argue with that. Um, it's just that we're so used to being given some kind of assessment instrument, which has little or nothing to do with actually measuring learning or even dealing with what kind of learning was actually occurring in the classroom. Yeah. Cause ostensibly we're charged with teaching usually, you know, communicative English and you know, you, you do what you do, uh, evidence-based or otherwise. Um, and then you're, uh, you're, whether your success or failure is determined, it's like, well, you have your student, questionnaires at the end of the term and then you've got their TOEIC test it's like well you know these are probably not the best tools to measure what's happening here and I do have evidence that there is not that much of a correlation often between high level you know high level scores and what students could actually let's not go let's not go oh, down do that you? okay let's move do on you? move on move on move on move on move on uh, and the other little thing about the assessment too is the idea of it being a photo album and not a snapshot you know not some little isolated thing like like for example a toe test but you know the, the, the gambit you know the spectrum of what's happening in terms of learning and we're kind of focused on the english aspect and he's looking at you know a whole different type of education um but i think it still applies because you've got you know, a whole multitude of, of, of actual language skills and you have also thinking skills, which are also different. And then, then there's the cultural layer, too. Um, and, you know, if you're doing a good job 
um, you're impacting all of those things. But you know, I don't know of too many tests that that uh, <laughs> uh, can pull out all those things that that have happened or all the progress that's been made in all those different areas. Um, also, um, what I liked was uh, his emphasis on the student-teacher relationship. Some Hattie, yeah. And, um, yeah, and, you know, again, I'm going to go off without any, you know, research of my own. But, um, yeah, just instinctively for me, uh, it seems to be one of the, for me, anyway, one of the key elements of my success or failure. You know, so if I'm not connecting with the kids, this is not, nothing's going to happen right here. And it's just, it's, it's not going to work well. Um, but if I get a sense that, you know, that, that the students and I have a relationship, um, I can, you know, I get the sense that, yeah, we can, we can move mountains here. And, uh, it was nice to hear, uh, him acknowledging that the importance of that and, and also providing, you know, some, some evidence for it. Yeah. And you've got some too, right? I've got some evidence for that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've got negative evidence in some ways, but I was thinking about that and one of the things I find interesting about the importance of the relationship between the teacher and the student is that in an old-style traditional classroom where the teacher was lecturing, I think you could pretty much ignore that, and it would be the sheer brilliance, let's say, of the teacher. Performance. Or the performance of the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. But when you move into project-based learning or more of a student-based, student-centered learning environment, um, with a lot of student autonomy and individual students working and group work and pair work. And I think basically how you and I work and how most of the teachers we know work these days, yes, that relationship becomes paramount. And when it's not working, you, I get less interesting results than when the relationship is positive with the students. Hmm. So what else, Tony? Um, well, the other thing, and maybe the last thing that really, that really struck me was um, his, your discussion about uh, individual differences and um, kind of what I'm kind of feeling, and you guys talked a little bit too, but a future trend, um, personalized learning or individualized instruction. Um, again, what you just kind of reinforcing what you just mentioned you know, in, in terms of rather a teacher lecturing in front of the room, but um, breaking it down into, you know, activities and group work and uh, all the things that go along with that. And then, you know, kind of seeing that continued out and uh, the impact that it's going to have on the teaching, learning, uh, what the classroom looks like, what the teacher-student uh, relationship is going to be. Um, all kinds of vectors there that are in flux and changing. Uh, and I think that it's going to have pretty significant impact eventually, I think. Mm, I think it's very true. It's interesting to see how they're beginning to implement that at Canadian Academy. But I think, you know, my response to the whole discussion I was talking with DJ, especially about the future trends and variability and variation in student learning and then adapting to that and customizing education, was this real positive attitude of this is not a negative thing we have to deal with. This is a positive. This is mm -hmm. an interesting thing. Let's deal with it. Let's meet the challenge. Let's find solutions. And it was that kind of overwhelming optimism, for lack of a better term, that 
we will go out and innovate. And we will not innovate just for the purpose of innovating, but because we have identified needs, we can see things that need to be done, that need to be addressed. Again, and it's actually, it's evidence-based innovation instead of just sometimes what I think is this knee-jerk response is we're going to innovate just simply because we're innovating or innovating is cool or it's... Yeah, two, uh, yeah, a multiple, again, this is like, like multiple aspects of this. Yeah, it's that one thing where would you just what you said, it's like, well, change it just to change it is one thing. And but his but you said that that coming from a from a base of optimism and, and positive energy, it's um, thinking, well, now we have we have a chance to make this better rather than, oh, this is a problem that we have to fix. It's 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 uh, it's a you know, maybe maybe it's subtle, but it's a it's a significant. And when he talks about and he's, and he, with his positive energy, you can um uh, you can really feel that. Yeah, and it's it's a good, it's a real point. It's the attitude of, uh, right, it's just not something that has to be fixed. This is an opportunity. And let's get there. Let's achieve it. But, you know, that's really, it's always been interesting talking to DJ uh, in about education and just the ideas he has and, you know, how he has this real kind of bird's eye view of what's going on compared to, let's say, being in the classroom where it's harder to get a, a total view of, you know, or a big picture of mm. what's happening in an institution. But now he's gone. Yes. <laughs> Off to Le Jardin in uh, Hawaii. So uh, Lucky them, huh? Yeah, yeah. But CA, I think, has a lot of, um, you know, really, really, really excellent people. And the new headmaster is also a really interesting, talented person, I think, who's going to bring about some interesting changes and keep CA moving. So it's, you know, as I said, as a parent, I'm very pleased as an educator looking from the outside. I'm very, very pleased and looking forward to having some of my students come out and visit in September so that they get a chance to see what's happening in an international school and see some really you know exciting education practices. Yeah, well, good for Canadian Academy too. Yes. Okay. So anything else you want to add to that, Tony? I think we're done. All right. Okay. So let's go through our usual litany. Of... <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charles Wiz. Tony Silva. And we are two teachers talking at dot com at gmail.com on Skype anywhere else I think Google Hangouts we're around yeah somewhere yes <laughs> you'll find us two teachers talking that'll that'll get you there and on iTunes of course okay alright so it's off into the heat it's a hot yeah. summer it's a, there's uh, another semester down just about all that's left is the grading huh? grading how about marking marking all done I can't tell. <laughs> I'm still kind of in the in the midst of it. It's still it's still heap time. Still got I still got a day of classes left. So, and anyway, it'll get done. It'll be over soon. Okay, so you be well, Tony. Yeah, you too. Bye.